Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, continuing our conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Today and next week on the podcast, I'd like to address in a two-part format a very significant issue. I'd like to talk with you about the use of power and authority in ministry leadership. Now, right away, some of you are probably reacting negatively to that title, power and authority in ministry leadership. When I teach this material in a classroom, I often ask students, what's your reaction to those words, power and authority? And how do you feel they relate to those of us who serve in ministry leadership? And it always stimulates a very invigorating discussion. There are some students who are triggered by those words, power and authority, and they react very negatively to them. There are others who raise uh, theological questions. How can servant leaders who are supposed to model the humility of Jesus, how can they use power and authority? And then, frankly, there are also some generational dynamics in that conversation. It's a general observation, certainly not a a restricted uh, comment from me or, or an absolute comment from me, but Usually, the younger students in class have more of a struggle with the concepts of power and authority in ministry leadership than perhaps the older students do. So when I bring up this topic, I'm aware that it produces a lot of different responses from different people. Some react negatively to the ideas of power and authority. Some question the legitimacy of discussing power and authority in the context of ministry leadership, and there are some generational uh, impacts or some generational perspectives. Typically, younger students have a little more challenging uh, time accepting the reality of this uh, subject than maybe older students do. So today, to help clear up some of these concerns and to lay a foundation for what we're talking about, let me first define power and authority both from the dictionary and then by looking into the New Testament. And then I'm going to attempt to do a kind of an overview of what the Bible teaches about and uses, how it uses these two words. First of all, the Oxford English Dictionary defines power as the ability to do something or act in a particular way, capacity to influence the behavior of others, the right or authority given or delegated to a person or body. Notice the word authority is used in the definition of the word power. Now, the same dictionary defines authority this way. The power or right to give order and enforce obedience. A person or organization exerting control. The power to influence others based on recognized knowledge or expertise. So, in this definition, the word power is actually used to define authority. Now, I want you to see the interplay of these two words and these definitions, power and authority. Authority is used to define power, and power is used to define authority, which means these two concepts are very closely connected. In fact, it's possible to say from these dictionary definitions that power and authority are largely synonymous concepts. They overlap significantly and they can, uh, and they have a very deep and uh, profound connection to each other. 
Now, that's the Oxford English Dictionary. What about the uses of these words in the New Testament? Well, first of all, the word authority is the Greek word exousia. Now, that may be the very first time I've ever used a Greek word on the podcast. This is about practical issues related to ministry leadership, and I know that. But stay with me as we think about this. The Greek word for authority is exousia, and the Greek word for power is dunamis. Exousia, authority, dunamis, power. Now let's look into the New Testament and see how these words are used. First of all, in the Gospels, Jesus had exousia. I won't go through all the scripture references on the podcast. I think that would become too tedious. But the Bible says that Jesus taught with authority. He had authority to forgive sins. He had authority to heal. He had authority over evil spirits. He gave authority to others. He had authority over his death. And Jesus has all authority. And that is mentioned in Matthew 28, 18, John 17, 2, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Jude 25, and Revelation chapter 2. All of these places use the word exousia in conjunction with Jesus and reveal how he had authority. Now, it since this word is related to Jesus, we know that in all of those cases, it was a positive expression of authority. But the New Testament also has some negative uses of authority or sometimes when exousia is used in the negative. For example, the Pharisees questioned Jesus's source of authority. Jesus characterized Gentile leaders, negative use of authority. Uh, Paul had authority to destroy Christians. Pilate claimed authority over Jesus. Simon asked for authority to confer the spirit, uh, authority for judgment inflicted on the earth resides with God. So these are some negative uses of authority, if you will, or I would say negative outcomes of authority being used. But there are also other positive uses of authority besides those associated with Jesus. For example, the Roman centurion referenced his authority in asking for healing for his son. Authority for the return of Jesus resides with God. A governmental authorities derive their authority from God. Paul claimed apostolic authority, and leaders are instructed in the New Testament to teach with authority. Now again, I'm not giving all these scriptures on the podcast. It would simply be too tedious. Uh, if you're really interested in this study, email me. I'll send it to you. But all of these things that I've just mentioned have clear scripture references where the word exousia is used. It's used in relationship to Jesus on multiple occasions. It's also used to describe negative uses of authority, and it's also used to describe positive uses of authority by many other people besides Jesus. Now, what about dunamis? We find dunamis has the same pattern. First of all, Jesus in the Gospels had dunamis, and dunamis is associated with him in several instances. For example, um, Jesus said that his power was attributed to God, that he would have power at his return. 
Uh, Power went out of Jesus during healing moments. Uh, The power of Elijah was said to be a part of John the Baptist's life. The power of the Spirit in Jesus' life. The power of Jesus over unclean spirits. Jesus gave power to the 12, and he gave power to the 70. So these are examples of dunamis associated with the life and ministry of Jesus and people connected to him. So once again, we see, just as in exousia, authority, that dunamis, power, is associated positively with Jesus. Now, looking at other instances in the New Testament, there are negative and positive uses of dunamis as well. For example, in the book of Acts, the power to heal is attributed to human agency. That's a negative use. The power to heal is questioned by authorities. The power of God is attributed to a sorcerer. False power is claimed by false preachers in other parts of the New Testament. Human power is overcome at the second coming. The power of sin is obviously described in the New Testament. Uh, Satan has power, the New Testament says, and dead churches have little power. So these are all examples of how dunamis is used in a negative sense in the New Testament. But there are also many positive uses of the word. For example, there's power given to the disciples. The apostles had power for preaching. Stephen was described as being full of power. There's a significant number of references to the power of God in the New Testament, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus. Uh, There's power in the kingdom of God. There's power demonstrated in the resurrection, the power of the gospel, the power of angels, the power attributed to Jesus and to God in prayer. These are examples of the word dunamis used in a positive way. Now, admittedly, I've gone through this biblical material very quickly, and it gains more impact, I think, if you can see all the scriptures that are associated with all these uses of exousia and dunamis in the New Testament. But trusting me, if you will, that I've given you a summary of what the Bible says about how these two words are used, Let's now draw four conclusions from this biblical material. We might call this a theological summary about dunamis and exousia, power and authority. First, these verses teach us that God has all authority and all power. God has all exousia and all dunamis. Now, this is very significant. All means all. And so that leads us to the second conclusion. And that is God shares or vests his authority and power in both people and organizational structures like governments and churches and families. Now, these two first uh, statements go together. First, God has all authority and power. But second, God shares or vests his authority power in people and organizational structures like the government, the church, and the family. This is a profound statement. Yes, as a ministry leader, God has vested some authority in you 
for the role that you've been given. Yes, God has vested in the government and in the family, particularly in the father-mother hierarchy and ranging down to the children. God has vested authority and power. But if you're one of those people who's been invested with authority and power, you better never forget where it came from. Because as soon as you do, the arrogance will rise up in you and you will, as they sometimes say, be able to strut sitting down. You will think that you are bigger, better, and more important than you really are. You know, at Gateway Seminary, I have had power and authority invested in me by the organizational structure that God has allowed to be created in this culture, in this context, at this time. And make no mistake, I have power and authority. I can direct people to do certain jobs. I can decide who's employed and who isn't. I can determine how much compensation is extended to every person in the organization. I can make decisions about investments and about the use of resources. I can make decisions about programming and curriculum and speakers and all kinds of issues that relate to our school. And it would be so easy to get puffed up with all of that and begin to think, I'm a pretty powerful guy. But then I remember, whatever power and authority is invested in me really belongs to God. He has all authority and power. And whatever I have, I have to stay on my knees before God and ask him on a regular basis how he wants me to use it so that I make sure that I do not abuse the power and authority he's given me. Well, a third statement that comes out of that biblical study that I overviewed for you is that authority and power can be used for good or bad. We see that in the New Testament. Certainly, Jesus is an example of both of using it only for good, but all these other examples I gave you of both exousia and dunamis, positives and negatives, tell us that both of these concepts can be used either for good or they can also be used for bad. And then the last conclusion I would draw from this biblical material is that Christian leaders have authority and power and must use it wisely so that when we use it, tying back to the third statement, we use the authority and power we've been given only for good. So let's summarize what we've learned so far. The Bible uses the word exousia, translated authority, the word dunamis, translated power. These words are closely connected by dictionary definition, and we find that in Scripture, they're also closely connected. We also find that throughout the New Testament, using both, looking at the uses of both of these words, that all authority and power rests in God. He shares or vests his authority power in people and structures like governments, churches, and families. Authority and power can be used for good or for bad, and it's becoming of us as Christian leaders to make sure that we use authority and power wisely so that we can always use it for good. Now let's shift gears, and I want to talk about three other 
issues related to authority and power in ministry leadership. First of all, I want to challenge you about some negative attitudes that you may have about using authority and power as a ministry leader. First, fear. Now, fear of authority and power can express itself in two ways. First, you may fear using power and authority because you just don't want to take that responsibility and you don't want to own the reality, and so you're afraid of the authority and power that you've been given. Therefore, you miss the opportunity of using it appropriately. But fear can also be a negative attitude when we are fearful of being abused by the powerful. And quite frankly, Some people are afraid of being abused by the powerful because they have been abused or they have watched other people be abused. And by this, I'm not necessarily referring to sexual abuse. I'm talking about abuse of power in any way in a ministry relationship. So the first negative uh, attitude toward a power and authority that we have to overcome is fear, fear of using it our fear of having it inflicted on us. A second negative attitude we have to overcome is lust. The lust for power, the desire for supremacy, for recognition, for people to notice us, and the desire to have power for the primary purpose of lording it over others and somehow elevating yourself. You know, as we're going to learn uh, next week in more detail on the podcast, it is appropriate to want to have power and authority as a ministry leader, but only in the context of using that power and authority for the accomplishment of God's mission and the well-being of his people. So a second negative attitude we have to overcome is the lust for it. Man, I can't wait to get in charge because when I get in charge... I'm going to change this, and I'm going to change that, and I'm going to make this better, and I'm going to show people how it's supposed to be done, and I'm going to achieve what I can achieve when I'm finally given the opportunity. you got to get past that. Third, a third negative attitude is the denial of the reality of power and authority in ministry relationships. Some leaders live in denial. Oh, no, I, I don't have any power and authority in the Power and authority dynamics in ministry relationships just don't exist in my organization. And, and, and I just want to step away from that and not be a part of that. And I just want to deny that it exists, deny the reality of it, deny that I'm a part of it. Well, denial never changes reality. <laughs> Power and authority in ministry relationships is a real dynamic. You denying it means you only miss the opportunity of using appropriately what God has vested in you. And then a fourth negative attitude is naivete. You're naive about power and authority dynamics in ministry relationships. And quite frankly, that's where a lot of you younger leaders probably are today. Certainly where I was when I was a younger leader. I just didn't understand the dynamics of what was happening around me in terms of power and authority in ministry relationships like I do today. I'm going to talk about this next week on the podcast in much more detail. But for now, learning about power and authority, how to use it wisely, how to recognize it being used positively and negatively in your organization is a part of growing as a leader and developing the wisdom needed to make good decisions, to have a proper perspective, and to prevent the misuse of power and authority in your organization. 
And then finally, the last negative attitude I want to challenge you to overcome is cynicism. Cynicism about power and authority in ministry. Uh, This cynicism can be expressed in many ways, but one of the ways I notice that ministry leaders often express this is through hostile humor, our sarcastic jokes, our cutting remarks, criticizing the deacons of their church or the elders or making fun of the decision-making processes of a business meeting or committee structures, just being cynical about power and authority and how it's expressed in organizational leadership. So if you have any of these five negative attitudes, fear, lust, denial, naivete, or cynicism, I want you to go back to the first part of this podcast and think through some of the biblical material about this issue and let that material overcome your negative attitudes. Remember, authority and power are both biblical concepts. They are both capable of being used for good. They are both vested in people and in structures, and they must be used wisely to accomplish what God intends when he shares some of his authority and power with us. Now, some of you, second of all, another big area here, second of all, some of you are concerned about abusing power in ministry relationships, and I certainly want you to be concerned about that. All of us have to be on guard that we don't find ourselves abusing others with the power and authority we've been given. I'm indebted to a fellow named Calvin Miller, who wrote on leadership in a previous generation. In one of his books, he has a section on the evidence of power abuse by leaders. And I picked these up a number of years ago. They were very meaningful to me, and I've used them over the years to be a check in my spirit about whether I'm slipping into the pattern of abusing power or authority. Here's the first one, giving up the disciplines we still demand of others. Everyone else should have a time alone with God every day, but I don't need to do that. Everyone else should give a percentage of their income away, but I'll just give with grace giving. Everyone else needs to be in worship service uh, on a weekly basis, but, you know, if I miss sometimes, that's different because, you know, I, I don't really need that. You know, everyone else needs to be at work on time every day, but, you know, I, I, I'm a little, a little more important than that. I, I don't need it to do that. When you set yourself up and say, other people should be doing these disciplines, but I don't have to do them, that is an evidence of the abuse of power in ministry leadership. Here's another evidence. Believing others owe whatever we can use them to do for us. Believing others owe us whatever we can use them to do for us. You know, I'm privileged here at the seminary to have some assistants who support my work on a daily basis. But they don't owe that to me. They do that because they serve willingly, and they serve because they believe in our mission, and they serve because they respect me and want to help me be successful. They don't owe that to me. And I cannot treat them with disdain or disrespect or like they're my underlings or something like that. I hate that word. No. When you start thinking that way about the people who serve you, you are starting down the path of abusing power. Another problem is when you're trying to fix things up rather than make things right. You know what I mean. You make a mistake and rather than admitting it, you try to cover it up. 
something goes wrong in your organization, rather than fix it, you try to patch it and work around it and keep other people from finding out about it. Fixing things up rather than making things right is a sign that you're on the wrong path about power and authority. Here's another one. Closing our minds to suggestions, we could be wrong. (laughs) You know, when you're in a meeting and someone disagrees with you and you say, but I'm the pastor, I'm the president, I'm the director, I'm the boss. That doesn't mean you're always right. And when you close your mind to any suggestion of possibility that you might not be right, you're headed down the wrong road on how you're using power and authority. And then the last one, believing people in your way are expendable. Believing that people can be hired and fired and abused and set aside and criticized and cast off as long as you get what you want or your organization gets what you think it needs. Well, these are some evidence of power abuse that Calvin Miller pointed out years ago that I think still hold uh, our attention today. So if you're giving up the disciplines you demand of others and believing others owe you whatever you can get from them and trying to fix things up rather than make things right or closing your mind to any suggestion that you might be the one who's wrong or believing that people in your way are expendable, my friend, you are showing some evidence of drifting toward or in full flower of abusing the power and authority that you've been given. Well, finally, we've talked about negative attitudes and evidence of abuse. Now, finally, what are some power games that people play and that we often play in ministry settings and how can we respond to those? Here are three ways people abuse power and authority in ministry relationships and sometimes they direct that abuse back toward us. Here's three of my favorites. The first one, God told me. God told me. God told me that our church needs to do this. God told me that you need to preach a certain way. Uh, God told me that our organization needs to launch this initiative. You know, God told me. Well, when someone brings out the God stick, starts whacking me with it, it's a little hard to respond to that. God told me. You need to be careful that you don't do the same thing to other people. Now, we're spiritual leaders, and so it's appropriate for us to go into meetings and say, I've been praying about this, and I sense this may be the direction God is taking us. That's very different than God told me. God told me can be a power game that people play to try to use the largest uh, weight of influence they have, God himself, to get you to do what they want. Here's another power game. A lot of people think, a lot of people think, whenever someone says this to me, you know, a lot of people think we should do this. I always ask a very simple question. Who? Well, you know, some people in the church have been coming to me. Well, let's get them together and talk about this. Well, they, they, they want to remain anonymous. Well, then I, I really can't respond to them, can I? So if a lot of people think, then let's get together in a room and let's talk about it. Let's find out what a lot of people think, and let's just see uh, what we can do about it. The reality is most of the time when someone says this to you, there are not a lot of people who think anything. There's this one person and maybe one or two other cranky folks who've been uh, joining his chorus, and now he wants you to believe that a lot of people think. You know, I struggle with this as a leader uh, with a, a large constituency. I sometimes get email from people saying, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of pastors about this. And I always think, well, which pastors? 
Uh, I've talked to a lot of people in our area about this, and this is how we feel. Okay, well, which people? It's just very important that we not overreact to people and that we not use this game ourselves to try to bring extra weight to an argument when we really don't know how else to go forward. And now a third power game. And that one is called, if you don't blank, I will blank. If you don't start preaching better sermons, I'm going to a different church. If our church doesn't get a youth pastor, we're going to leave and go where they have one. If our church doesn't change the children's Sunday school curriculum, we're going to find a church that teaches the Bible in a different way. If our church doesn't do this, I'm leaving, I'm going to stop giving, I'm going to create trouble on social media. If you don't do what I'm saying, I'm going to bring some consequences on you. Now, I'm sure there are some exceptions to this, but I have learned over the years that when anyone comes to me with a power game like this, if you don't do this, I'm doing this. It is a fool's errand to try to solve that in their favor. You're much wiser and better to say, you know, I'm really sorry to hear you say that. We're going to miss you when you leave our church. Or, you know, we're going to miss your giving. It's made a difference. Or, we're going to miss you participating in that program. But we're going to need to go forward anyway, just like we planned. Every time I've done that, while there may have been short-term conflict or confusion, it's always proved out to be the best long-term decision. Well, today on the podcast, we've covered part one of power and authority in ministry leadership. We've looked at a broad overview of how the Bible uses the words exousia and dunamis. We've drawn some theological conclusions from that biblical overview. And then, based on that, I've covered three different areas of misuse or abuse of power and authority. Negative attitudes we hold, evidence we're drifting in the wrong direction, and power games people play or that sometimes we play on other people. Now next week, we're going to turn our attention to some sources of power and authority in ministry relationships and how we can better understand them and how we can facilitate them and strengthen our ministry leadership. Power and authority in ministry relationships. It's a significant part of what we do. We have to understand how to do it well. Hopefully these podcasts will help you do this management of this important resource to the best of God's uh, advantage. Do it well as you lead on.